I'm Dove Tuzman. You're back on Equal Footing. Back in the New York area, not in studio tonight. Hope the sound quality is okay. We had a different topic programmed for this week. We're going to push that off. It'll be a surprise. But we pivoted a few days ago with our wonderful producer, Leah, to a topic that is on the front page over the last few days of global news, not just U.S. news. President Biden's trip through the cover of night to Kiev, Ukraine, right on the eve of President Putin's uh, speech, a act of courage, it seems, or was it foolhardy? You know, the press on this visit was so starkly different. Certain press outlets saying that it was one of the great acts of presidential courage for President Biden to go to a war zone that was not in American control. You know, President Obama and and uh, President Bush and so forth, and even President Trump have gone to Iraq and Afghanistan and so forth during their terms, but they were still in war zones that were largely under American control. This is a different scenario. This is a war zone outside of the purview of the American military, at least, direct, at least directly on the ground. And, you know, this visit and the different press coverage, with some outlets calling it a great act, as I said, of presidential courage, and others thinking it was foolhardy, even reckless, got us to thinking. Because we're a Jewish show on a Jewish network, and, of course, we welcome listeners of all faiths and creeds. It got us to thinking about this fine line between bravery and brazenness, between boldness and a little bit too much chutzpah between being courageous and being reckless. It is a fine line. It's a fine line in our lives. The risk that we take to advance in our career, for example, start a new business, is also a risk sometimes of our family's livelihood and well-being. There are, of course, calculated risks and foolhardy risks. And we got to thinking, what is the biblical wisdom on this subject? What is halacha, what does Jewish wisdom in general tell us about what it means to be courageous and when courageousness turns into recklessness. Well, you know what? It turns out to be a hotly debated topic for hundreds, if not thousands of years. And we have two wonderful guests tonight to talk about this distinction, both through the lens of biblical and Jewish wisdom and contemporary politics, and particularly American presidential leadership. We thought that was a neat way to juxtapose the points of view on this topic. Joined by two guests who have been on the show, the program before, been a while, and wonderful to welcome them back. Let's start with Rabbi and Professor Reuven Kimmelman. Professor Kimmelman is a professor of classical Judaica at Brandeis University. He's also the rabbi of Beth Abraham New England Sephardic Congregation. He specializes in the history of classical Judaism with a focus on the history and poetics of Jewish liturgy. He has a book coming out shortly called The Rhetoric of Jewish Prayer. Uh, his other book in Hebrew uh, is The Mystical Meaning of Lechad Dodi and Kabbalat Shabbat, or Friday Night 
services. Professor Kimmelman's other writings have focused on the literary meaning of the Bible, the interaction between Judaism and Christianity, the conflict of war, and the significance of Abraham Joshua Herschel, amongst many other thinkers. Rabbi Professor Reuven Kimmelman, welcome back to Equal Footing. Thanks for joining us. Hopefully we have Professor Kimmelman on. <laughs> we'll continue with the introduction of our other wonderful, great, uh, wonderful guest who's been on the program before. He's an acclaimed presidential historian, Dr. Tevi David Troy. Dr. Troy is the former U.S. Deputy Secretary of Health and Human Services in the latter part of the aughts decade under the presidency of George W. Bush. He's also served as a senior White House aide in the Bush administration from uh, 2005 to uh, 2007. Dr. Troy founded the American Health Policy Institute and served as its CEO in 2014 to 2018. He's currently a senior fellow at the Bipartisan Policy Center, and his latest book is called, and we talked about this the last time he was on the program, it's called Fight House. Rivalries in the White House from Truman to Trump. It was named as one of 2020's top political books by the Wall Street Journal. He's also the author of Shall We Wake the President? Two Centuries of Disaster Management from the Oval Office. Dr. Troy, welcome back to Equal Footing. Thanks for having me. It is a real pleasure to be back on the show with you, Duff. Rabbi Kimmelman, let's start start with you and help us define courage in the Jewish uh, context. I remember learning in a I think philosophy 101 course at Harvard about Aristotle's uh, definition of courage. He called it the first virtue, the, the, the virtue above all other virtues, and had to do with overcoming fear. I'm kind of pulling this a little bit out of my memory, but not, not seeking honor, but rather doing the right thing and dis- despite fear. In, in Judaism, we have different words to, recur to, to, occur to, to refer to courage, I should say. Um, one phrase being omits lev, courage of the heart, another being chesek. What is, what is courage from a Jewish perspective, Professor Rabbi Kimmelman? I wonder if we're having an audio issue with uh, Professor Kimmelman. So, uh, Dr. Troy, do you want to try to take a stab at that from a biblical perspective, or should we dive right into contemporary politics? Well, I mean, there are obviously a lot of courageous people in um, Abraham. Uh, hears from God the words lech lecha. God doesn't tell him where he's mm-hmm. going or exactly what he's doing, and Abraham goes. And uh, that's a very courageous decision to leave your family. Uh, similarly with Moses. Um, God tells him to be the leader of the Jewish people, to speak to the Jewish people. And what, what does Moses say? Lo varim anochi, and not a man of words. He's afraid. And um, <clears throat> the Rashbam says one of the reasons he's afraid is because his accent is different than the Israelites, and that they won't trust him. We have this kind of issue today with immigrants, and uh, you know, do, do immigrants fit in? And what if somebody has a different accent? And how do you accept them? So. Uh, but Moses goes ahead, even with, you know, with Hashem's prodding, with God's prodding, but uh, he shows real courage there. And then uh, I always think of Joshua, uh, who, who leads the Jewish people into the land of Egypt, and he was a real cur- courageous leader, a, a great military man. So, we, uh, And then one more, just let me give one last example, of David, uh, shepherd boy, um, younger than his brothers, the great Goliath of Gath comes, and they threaten the Jewish people. Who can stand among against Goliath? And everybody's afraid, but not David. David shows courage. He said he's taken on lions, he's taken on bears, 
and he's got the Lord with him. He doesn't need soft, heavy armor. He doesn't need the big, heavy sword. He just goes out into mortal combat with Goliath, and he defeats him, uh, without which perhaps the Jewish people wouldn't be here today. So I think there have been some great examples of courage in the Bible. Professor, I think we've got you now. So Dr. Troy refers to these examples of courage. There's so many in the patriarchs and in, in, in Chumash and in the, in, the, in the Bible. And it seems like in many cases they're not even afraid. Um, it, from, a, from the perspective of biblical narrative and lessons, is being, is being courageous in our faith about not having fear or is it about overcoming fear? I think the key examples which he gave just now, I would focus upon Abraham and Moses. And the one thing about Abraham, which is remarkable, is that he's willing to take up the cudgels against God on the issue of justice. Now, before him, nobody had ever provoked God or actually argued against God. Noah is quiet. Adam takes his punishment. Abraham, on the principle of justice, opposes him. And I think... What he's doing is he's trying to get God to live up to his own godliness because in chapter 18, verse 19, he says, the reason I chose out Abraham is that Abraham is to keep the way of the Lord. Okay, but what is the way of the Lord? To do what is just and right in order that the Lord may bring about for Abraham what he has promised him. What Abraham is challenging him is, God, live up to your reputation. You call yourself the judge of all the earth. You cannot not do justice and maintain your reputation. Now, that is exactly a tremendous balance between what I would call recklessness and courage. And the only thing which gave him the courage to be reckless is that God had praised him for pursuing justice. So clearly, God cares about justice. If God is perceived to be unjust, he's going to wreck his reputation. So I would call Abraham tremendously courageous. Tremendously reckless. In this case, the courage <laughs> derives to his understanding of God. And if you apply the same principle, Moses has three conflict situations before he's chosen out. He takes the side of the Hebrew versus the Egyptian, takes the side of the Hebrew beating up on the on the Hebrew, takes the side of the Hebrew beating up, and then takes the side of the seven daughters of Jethro against the shepherds. In all three cases. He intervenes on the side of the underdog in the name of justice. What's the next chapter? He's chosen to be God's prophet. Before you go to I the next chapter, that Moses Professor, is chosen. Professor Kimmelman, I, I, I think what? that it's, it's interesting right at the outset that you've both picked examples that to some extent seem to be someone standing up to injustice, even perceived injustice, as delivered by God. And so... Let, let's let's just kind of knock this off the list and is an integral part of courage kind of standing up to something that is wrong? Is that got to be part of the definition? I'm talking about from a Jewish wisdom perspective. Then we'll look at kind of contemporary politics and how that translates. But it's got to be more than ourselves, right? It's almost it's got to be about about standing up to risk, danger, injustice that we perceive being visited upon others. Do, do you agree with that, Dr. Troy? Is that a good starting point? Yeah, obviously courage is about standing up, standing tall in difficult situations. I mean, if you stand up in an easy situation, that's not really courage. And the, the other thing about courage is it's different from fear, right? I mean, true courage 
is standing up even when you are afraid, right? Because if you're not afraid, it's not courage. So I think it's important to look at courage within that context. It's not mindless. Uh, I'm not fear. I, I, I fear of no man. I fear no dangers. It's recognizing the dangers and being willing to stand up to them. I would only add the element of standing up for the rights of others. Abraham takes on God for the rights of Sodom. Moses argued against God for the rights of the people. Neither one are arguing for themselves. So we're talking about courage on principle for the sake of others gives you the basis to argue against God. If you're only arguing for yourself, not only when you have the courage, but be reckless because no justice involved. Yeah, and there's, there's quite a bit of, of Jewish wisdom from the Mishnah and Pirkei Avot, the, the wisdom of our, of our fathers, to lessons from the Hasidic master Rabbi Nachman of Breslov. There's a lot of reference to uh, courage kind of being canceled out, if you will, if you're somehow seeking personal honor or personal glory. And I think that's a really interesting distinction between kind of the, the paragons of courage that we see in the political narrative, in the literary and media narrative, that there's very there's a very strong um, strain in our faith of courage really only kind of counting. I'm being a little bit um, jocular with the, the way I'm saying it, but it only counts if you're somehow doing it for someone else as opposed to for personal, uh, for some, some sort of personal gain or for personal glory. The, the, where I get a little bit um, confused on that last point, though, is the an example of courage that we often um, hear about uh, growing up in the Jewish tradition of Jacob, who's then named Israel, on be, you know, because of his willingness to kind of wrestle with the angel of God. Um, but he's forced to do that. He's like, you know, he's, it's not something that he kind of stands up to do. He's got no choice. <laughs> he is, you know, the angel kind of confronts him. Can we talk a little bit, uh, Professor Kimmelman, about the complexity of Jacob, um, who at times seems like he's um, uh, not really interested in being courageous or even does things after the wrestling with the angel that could be interpreted as cowardly or at least kind of stepping away from conflict? Well, my take on that specific story is that he's not, uh, um, Jacob is not wrestling with an angel. The word angel never appears there. He's wrestling with a person called Ish, a man. In the midst, he realizes that the man is afraid of the dawn. He tries to extricate and, and squeeze out of him a blessing. Then he calls the place the face of God. And next morning, when he sees the face of Esau, he says, seeing your face reminds me of what? The face of God. I think a Jacob is actually wrestling with his conscience. He knows that he wronged Esau. He knows that Esau has a right to harm him. And wrestling with his conscience also means wrestling with God. So the face of God and the face of Esau converge in his imagination. And by resolving his issue with Esau, who finally takes the present after much encouraging, he resolves his issue with God. And he goes on to become one of the patriarchs. But he can't do that having deceived his brother unless he paid the price. And he paid the price because he got deceived by his uncle the same way he deceived his father, one in the dark, one blind, one the younger for the older, one older for the younger. And what goes around comes around. And his realization that the world operates by justice, and he's willing to operate by that way and make amends to Esau, is a, is a exemplar of courage 
but it's also a man who's able to wrestle with his conscience and come out relatively unharmed, but yet a bit harmed. Well, we're going to take our first break, but Dr. Troy, I'm going to ask you to reflect a little bit on the example of Jacob. I have a little bit of a different view there than, than Professor Kimmelman. Uh, it seems to be a, a more of a complex character, at least from my humble perspective, but we'll get back to that after the break, and we'll tie it in to presidential politics. Yes, we're going from Chumash, from Torah, to U.S. presidential politics. We're talking about the fine line between courageousness and recklessness when we're being bold, as we should be, and when we're being too brazen. Participate in this conversation. Tie it into your life. Give us an example of when you struggle with that line. You can text or WhatsApp a question or comment here to Professor Reuben Kimmelman or Dr. David uh, Troy, Tevi David Troy, by texting 917-428-4062. Again, don't call that number. That's for texting or WhatsApping a question or comment. 917-428-4062. And if you want to participate live, call the following number and have patience. Let it ring because our radio engineer is alone in the studio tonight, and he may take a little time to see it on the board. That number is 718-303-9090. That's 718-303-9090 to participate live in this conversation about Omitzlev, courage, and when does it become foolhardiness? We'll be right back. I'll stand directly at the sun, but never in the mirror. It must be exhausting, always rooting for the anti-hero. Equal Footing is brought to you in part by Mechanical Art Capital, long-term sponsor of the program, Mechanical Art Capital offers overnight max two-day financing to watch dealers and watch collectors. Your timepiece collection has value. Get some cash out of it. You don't have to actually sell it, but you can get money against your collection. Or if you're a watch dealer, and I know we have some watch dealers that listen to the program, you can unlock the cash value of your inventory as well. It's super easy takes five, ten minutes to fill out. You can go to the Mechanical Art Capital app on your iPhone or Android device. That's three words, Mechanical Art Capital. Or you can call 833-209-0972. That's 833-209-0972. You get a free appraisal, which is valuable for your insurance and so forth. And then you get a quick offer on cash against your timepieces. Try it. Again, Mechanical Art Capital in your app store or call 833-209-0972. I've been caught, but I'm keeping on, keeping on I've been told. Hi, we're talking about boldness and brazenness, courage, courage and recklessness. We're going to bring it into the modern day in a moment. Dr. Tevi Troy, you studied uh, presidential politics over decades and centuries, but before we get to asking you specifically of examples of in presidential politics in the United States where this line is evident between courageousness and recklessness, I want you to 
help me out with with Jacob because it seems like the courage of Abraham and standing up for the innocent and innocence and in Sodom and, and Gomorrah and so forth and the courage of Moses speaking to God on behalf of the people those seem clear cut even Nachson as he goes into the Red Sea as it's parted Jacob feels to me more complicated he wrestles the angel but right afterwards he's trying to appease his brother he refuses to go to to go to combat to go to war after that and several occasions is is Jacob a paragon of courage, maybe a better one because it's kind of somehow subtler, more nuanced, Dr. Troy? Well, look, Jacob is a great man and one of the patriarchs, but not every patriarch, not every leader we admire has to have every trait that we admire. <clears throat> and so I would say that Jacob is not a man you would think of about courage. And it starts with his very birth when it says uh, Yaakov is Ish Ohelim, a man who lives by the tent. Uh, lives, lives in tents. He's, you know, he's a man who studies and contemplation. And, you know, he builds, he, he bakes the, uh, makes the red lentil stew for his brother. And Jacob, there are many times in his life when he doesn't show courage. He doesn't stand up to his mother when she says, trick your father. When Esau is understandably mad, Jacob runs away. When he's unhappy with Laban or Laban, he runs away in the middle of the night and Laban has to go catch up to him. He does eventually stand up to Laban. But it was not really a courageous moment. And then, obviously, he's pretty afraid when his brother is coming after him with 400 armed men. And then later, when he's living in Canaan and two of his sons really do a a terrible thing, Jacob's reaction is not to upbraid them for what they've done morally in terms of slaughtering the people of of Shem, but to say he's afraid of what will the people around think. You know, there's the... um, the example of the 50s and 60s Jews, the Shah still for the Goyim. Don't let the Goyim hear that we're doing this or that. So, again, Jacob, a great man, a great patriarch, but I don't think of him as the most courageous of the people from the Bible. <laughs> Professor Kimmelman, there's a, a character in Shakespeare that says discretion is the better part of valor. And this, so sometimes being courageous is actually not taking action. Do you agree with Dr. Troy? Is 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 Jacob maybe not a good example of, of courage amongst the patriarchs? I would agree with some of the examples, but I think it's a bit overgeneralized. If you were faced with 400 men coming at you, and the last time you heard your brother speak was, I'm going to kill you, and you don't run away, but instead you put your whole family on one side of the river, you stay on the other side of the river, and you try to confront them personally, and you try to appease them, and then he brings gifts. And, he, and initially, Esau refuses the gift. And Jacob says, take the gift, because he knows until Esau ex- takes the gift, what will he do? He won't be reconciled. Then Esau says, okay, I'll go with you. And he says, no, we go too slow. Go quick. And as soon as Esau's out of sight, what does he do? He changes direction to Sukkot as a Buddhist year. I was thinking the opposite. This is a man who's frequently endangered, frequently on the short side of the stick, especially with his own uncle. And, and, and has the ability to manipulate the situation to maximize his reality without getting killed. In other words, it's not like he'd come out smoothly. So the alternative with Esau was getting killed. He resolved, right. reconciled it, raised his family. Now, great men frequently have children who don't follow or listen to their orders. And he had 12 <laughs> rambunctious children. His ability to control them even somewhat is remarkable. So if you look for perfection, you won't get it. If you have the ability to resolve a problem, to maximize the benefit, you got it. 
So we're about, we're 25 minutes in, and it seems like from a Jewish wisdom perspective, we're zeroing in on a definition of courage as being willing to stand up for others, even in, in the face of God, if, if injustice is observed, but it's also, you know, have, harboring discretion and kind of picking, picking your battles, uh, if, if, uh, if you want to put it that way. Dr. Troy, do you think the Jewish definition of courage, it's Omet's lab, the courage of the heart, it, which is nuanced, it's not always just, you know, charging forward into the fray. Is it a relevant guide for contemporary political leadership? If you're living a Jewish life and you look at your president, for example, if you live in the United States, is it relevant to think about these guideposts as it pertains to his or her actions? Oh, absolutely. I think presidents can learn a great deal from biblical examples, and, and many of them have. You know, James Madison specifically studied Hebrew at Princeton. It was then called the College of New Jersey, so that he could get lessons from the forefathers, from the, from the Bible, in the, in the original language. So, yeah, there, there are a lot of lessons that uh, presidents can learn from the, the Tanakh, from, uh, from our forefathers. Uh, but I, I would also say that it's important when you're president to have the wisdom not to engage in, let's say, military action or saber-rattling. There are times when you want to go forward, and be bold, but there are other, also other times where maybe you should hang back and maybe you shouldn't do it. I'll just think of uh, John F. Kennedy and the Bay of Pigs, right? And he kind of felt goaded into it because the Eisenhower administration had come up with the plans for it. He was a kind of seen as a young and callow youth, and he thought, oh, I shouldn't really second-guess Eisenhower. But it was a bad idea. It was leaked, mentioned in the New York Times that there are these Cuban exiles who are training and going to try and take over the Cuban government. And the plan was flawed from the start. So I don't think JFK showed courage when he pushed forward with the Bay of Pigs invasion. I think he showed recklessness, and he later regretted it. You know, it's interesting. When we think about presidential courage, it, often it's those militaristic examples, JFK and the Bay of Pigs, or, or in a better, uh, through a better light perhaps, uh, Ronald Reagan and, you know, uh, take down that wall, Mr. Gorbachev. But it seems to me, if we're applying a Jewish definition, that maybe the most courageous actions are the ones where people are standing up for injustice, even against their own interests, uh, in a sense. I think of LBJ overcoming his Southern heritage of racial discrimination and being a racist himself in terms of his own thinking for a good portion of his life and supporting the, the Civil Rights Acts in the mid, in the mid sixties. So what do you think if we apply a Jewish definition, Dr. Troy, are, you know, the one or two greatest examples of courage in the in the White House. Well, I, I think the LBJ example is a good one. I mean, he was cognizant of the political implications of what he was doing, and he said, in fact, that we will have lost the South for a generation if we do this. And indeed, the South is now you know, the bedrock of the Republican Party, no longer the bedrock of the Democratic Party. So I, I think there was political courage in doing that. Um, I also think Ronald Reagan. Uh, you mentioned the uh, Berlin Wall, but I, I think just in general, his approach to the Cold War was not the kind of namby-pamby approach that many in, in the professional foreign policy establishment had in Washington, but he had a simple strategy for addressing the Cold War. It was, we win, they lose. And people dismissed him as a simpleton, but his simple but not simplistic strategy that was followed by a vision of how to carry it out was, was successful, and by the end of his term, you had Gorbachev engaging in significant reforms, and the Soviet Union would indeed collapse under Reagan's successor, George H.W. Bush. 
Before we go to our next break, I'm wondering in the classroom at Brandeis, Professor Kimmelman, you're both a rabbi and a professor, where where things are coming out on President Biden's current uh, stance in Ukraine. You're teaching at a historical Jewish university. You bring a religious perspective to the to the classroom. It seems like there's a real divide right now. Is uh, is is poking the bear of, of Russia and potentially risking uh, nuclear um, action a you know is that is that an example of courage or recklessness? Where do things stand in the classroom, and where do things stand for you in your personal view with respect to looking at President Biden's actions through kind of a prism of Jewish ethics? Well, the difference between courage and recklessness is discerned by hindsight. So Biden, could you imagine what would have happened if Putin would have easily conquered Ukraine? What other three countries previously under the Soviet Union would have then been conquered and they would have stopped? In other words, if you if Biden had acted like Chamberlain, I wouldn't be surprised if Putin would act like Hitler. Therefore, the intervening and standing up for the Ukrainians and unifying NATO on the issue of an invasion is clearly on the issue of injustice. If we can let an invader get away with it, the world will stop. I'm sure the most astute observer of this reality is the head of China, who says, if he's going to get away with it in Ukraine, then I'll get away with it in Taiwan. And what do you think India will then do? So I think it's an extraordinarily act of courage, standing up for those who invaded, willing to put all his prestige in the presidency behind it, and if he comes out ahead. But while you talk about All right, Biden, well, that's a, that's a stake in the ground. You hear Professor Kimmelman saying Biden's trip to Ukraine, where we where we stand on this issue is, is a great act of courage. Others see it differently. We'll get back to this after the break. We are with Dr. Teddy David Troy, acclaimed presidential uh, scholar and former advisor, White House aide, and professor and rabbi Reuben. Kimmelman, professor of classical Judaica at Brandeis University. We're talking about the fine line between courageousness and recklessness. We'll be right back. Footing with Dove Tuzman is sponsored by MDCS Dermatology, your experts in skincare. With two Manhattan locations and four offices in Long Island, including Plainview and Comac, the dermatologists and skincare surgeons at MDCS are proud to be affiliated with the Albert Einstein College of Medicine and New York Presbyterian Hospital. So schedule your next skin exam in one of MDCS's convenient New York area locations. To make an appointment, go to www.mdcs.live or call 212-661-DERM. That's 212-661-3376. You can even schedule a virtual video visit with MDCS's board-certified dermatologists from the comfort and safety of your own home. So go to www.mdcs.live or call 212-661-3376. And don't forget to mention Equal Footing for 15% off all cosmetic procedures.
You're back on Equal Footing. I'm Dove Tuzman. We're here with Rabbi and Professor Reuben Kimmelman and Dr. Tevi David Troy. Uh, Dr. Troy, before the break, we were talking about Professor Biden, <laughs> Professor Biden, President Biden, and his recent uh, trip to the Ukraine, and in general stance in the Ukraine. What do you think? Is um, is this an is this an example of, of presidential courage or presidential recklessness? Well, I, I think there's two questions. One is, is it right to get involved in Ukraine? And I think I agree with what the Professor Rubin said in terms of we've significantly degraded Russia's military capacity at minimal cost to ourselves in terms of lives lost and uh, some, some cost to our treasury, but uh, I think it's worth the investment. Also, uh, who knows what happens when, as the professor said, if we encourage Putin or let him get away with stuff, what does he ask for next? I mean, there, there's no appeasing that bear. So that, that's one form of courage. And another form of courage is going into the war zone. Now, I, I don't really buy this argument that uh, it's not under U.S. military control, so it's more courageous. I mean, I remember when President Bush had to go into uh, Iraq, or when it chose to go into Iraq, and they had to do the corkscrew landing with all, all the lights off on the plane. I mean, that was a pretty dangerous trip that, that he undertook. So I don't think it's uh, worth to kind of measure the danger of each situation, but I think it's right to go visit the troops, and I applaud them for doing it. A lot of the comments that we've already got some listener comments on this issue, it, it, it's a controversial issue. A lot of the comments have to do with fear frankly, of the consequences. And is the current stance in Ukraine, as evidenced by this most recent presidential visit to Kiev, putting us all at risk? Are we kind of poking the bear? One listener wrote, are we also poking the panda, <laughs> referring to, to, to China? I want to talk about fear for a moment. Um, there's a lot of dialogue uh, ethically around courage. Even Mark Twain said courage is, the, courage is the resistance to fear, the master of fear, not the absence of fear. Uh, and in the Jewish tradition, there's a lot of reference to, to, to this, that, it's, that we're aware of, of the fear, but we're overcoming it. But when, when Rabbi Kimmelman, should we be um, not taking the action as a matter of prudence? It seems like there's a very strong argument, and a number of listeners who are making this point, that, um, that our current stance in Ukraine uh, is putting us all at risk, and that where that is a healthy fear that we should have, and we be should we should be more removed from a conflict that isn't really germane to our uh, interests in a really clear way. I'm thinking of Franklin Delano Roosevelt from 1939 to 1941, who did almost everything he could except start the war itself. Had Roosevelt waited another six months, no Jew would have survived. And the, and the possibility that the Nazis may have got to the atomic bomb first is a possibility, maybe even a probability, by 1944. So therefore, what is called reckless encourage is only known by hindsight. But I want to give you another example. If there ever was a president who people thought was reckless, is a previous president, Trump. Yet Trump, single-handedly with his advisors, transformed the whole way the world looked at the Arab-Israeli conflict of the Iranian Israeli conflict. In other words, he was not because he was not trained as other politicians to think in a certain way. He was allowed by his, by his advisors to think outside the box. On the other hand, Bibi it says try to persuade Trump to go to war against Iran, and he resisted. So here we have a man who resisted going to war, 
change the politics of the Middle East because it was able to have advisors who reconceptualize the whole thing. And other people consider it reckless. My only point being, what is reckless to one is courage to the other. And most presidents combine both, depending on people's political views. So some people could think that Roosevelt, by 1941, was reckless to declare war on Germany when he was attacked by Japan. He should have attacked that first. But if he had not declared war on Germany, I guarantee you one thing, we wouldn't be involved in this conversation today. <laughs> you know, one listener pointed out to, to, that illustrates your point about perspective, saying that Obama had real courage by backing off from the red line challenge that was violated by Syria. So kind of courage in stepping back from, uh, from an assertion. So sometimes, you know, the point being there that, that uh, courage is not always stepping forward, but sometimes stepping back. I think we've got a listener on the phone. Let's see if uh, if we can if we can take the caller. The there hello you're, hello you're, hello. You're on the air. It's Stan. How are you, Stan? Good to hear from you. Well, okay. <laughs> Look, uh, let me tell you. You're, you're not mentioning the, to me one of the most important people of courage. He isn't American. He isn't a Jew. He is an Arab, and he had more courage than I know of any of them, and that was Anwar Sadat, who, under Nasser, began the war against the Jews and so forth. And when Nasser died, he took control. And then he had to go against Begin. And Begin, the toughest of all the Jewish prime ministers, realized we have to have peace, and uh, uh, Sadat sat down with this man, Sadat, who was an intelligent, soft-spoken, but hard man, said, let's sit down, and did that. He had more courage than most leaders that I know. But the point was, his own generals told him, you sign on the dotted line with Israel for peace, it's your death. And he did sign on, and a year later, he was assassinated. What a great man this man was. I want, a very interesting point. We wanted to bring, in fact, we're going to have a show in a couple of weeks on, uh, we already have the title for it. It's called Jimmy and the Jews, and it's about Jimmy Forget Carter. Jimmy. Forget Jimmy. Sadat. I, I Sadat. But I understand, but, but of course, May, oh, by the, the way, the Camp David Agreement, we were going to get there, so this is great. Thank well, you. no, that, look, you're talking courage. He had it, and it cost him his life. Dr. Troy, what do you think of Stan's? Assertion. I, I wanted to bring up the Camp David agreements, and, and it was already it was a good segue from Professor Kimmelman talking about the Abrahamic Accords. He was referring to, uh, to President Trump's. Uh, uh, but yet, Trump. What? <laughs> hey, God, Dad. Hey, God, Doctor Troy. What? What do you think of the uh, of this listener's uh, assertion? Who? Who? Who is exhibiting courage um, versus recklessness in the Camp David Accords? What do you think about this? Well, I absolutely think that Sadat showed courage and made the right decision for Egypt. It had 40 years of peace with Israel, and as a large part as a result of that decision. Now, it did, as Stan says, cost him his life, and so that was a bold decision. <laughs> you know, it was the right decision for Egypt. Maybe it wasn't the right decision for Sadat, although he is remembered in history well as a result of that courageous decision he made. Begin also showed courage uh, at Camp David. You know, he was reluctant to go to Camp David because he feared that Carter would side with Sadat on everything and the two of them would gang up on him. And it turns out that he was right. That is indeed what happened. But Begin stood his ground and, and cut the best deal he could for Israel. And uh, this, the fact that this, this peace agreement has lasted for four decades, five decades now almost, is, uh, is a great thing for America, Israel, Egypt, the world. 
And without it, you couldn't have had the subsequent agreements that you had, let's say, with the Jordanians or the Abraham Accords. So a lot of things stem from that initial decision. So Professor Kimmelman has has basically said, and I'm, I'm stylizing your your comment, Professor, but is that it's really impossible to know whether something a decision has been is courageous or reckless until after the fact. But I want to help our listeners get more guidance. We're using presidential politics as a way of framing the discussion, but also it's to do with things in our you know our daily lives. Uh, what what is what is a way at the, at the president on the presidential side, Dr. Troy, that we can kind of assess the decision ahead of time? How can we apply the prism of ethics of is is this act an act of courage or is it an act of foolhardiness before we know the result down the line? I will tell you, as someone who's worked at the White House, it is very difficult to know how a decision will be received, not only by your adversaries, but by the American people before you do it. And there's this tension, this challenge within the White House that, on the one hand, you need to maintain operational security. You don't want people to know what you're doing before you do it. But on the other hand, if you don't vet these things, if you don't ask experts, if you don't get the temperature checked by outside people who have a different perspective, then you're not going to know how something will be received. And so White Houses often have this problem, that they think they've got some kind of brilliant stroke, and then it comes out to be a complete flop. Uh, one example I would think of this is, uh, is, unfortunately, in the Bush White House, in which I worked, um, Harriet Myers. Bush thought it was a great stroke of genius to suggest that she would be put on the Supreme Court. I know Harriet. She's a friend of mine. Uh, but it was not well received. Uh, the Democrats didn't really love it, and the Republicans certainly didn't like it, and it just didn't go over well, and she was unfortunately embarrassed and eventually had to withdraw. So sometimes these decisions that you think are some brilliant stroke within the confines of the four walls of the White House, suddenly when you go into the outside world, you find out that they didn't work out so well. So, Professor, uh, I would, I would put, your, put your rabbi hat on. You're also an ordained rabbi and leader of a congregation. And, and in our daily life, in our family lives, how do we apply the, the, the metric? How do we know uh, in, our, in our hearts whether a decision is, is courageous or reckless? I would first uh, quote Pirkeavot. He who is really courageous and strong who is in control, exercises self-control. So the first thing when a person makes an ethical decision, he asks the question, is it self-serving or other-serving? Insofar as it's self-serving, it's going to confuse his thinking and clarity in regard to others. When political decisions are made, presidential decisions are made, the president should ask himself the question, am I serving my own interests primarily, or am I serving the interests of the public? And then he should see whether his advisors agree with him that he's primarily serving the interests of the country and not one's own interests. The more one has power, the more difficult it is to distinguish between the two. So I say ethically the question is, is an okay of a devar? Am I an interested party? And if I'm an interested party, I am I'm disqualified from testifying because it's almost impossible for a person to distinguish between self-interest and the interests of others when one's own interest is involved. So the first issue to ask Jewishly is, is my, am I furthering my interest? And if my goal, an expression of courage, is furthering my interest, then it's probably puzzle, meaning it's disqualified. If, on the other hand, primarily others' interests are being served, then it's likely to be correct. 
before, I would call for moral clarity before the decision is made. And moral clarity always involves a calculation of self-interest and the interests of others and which side it comes out on. That's a beautiful way to look at it, whether you're serving your own interests through an act maybe outside of your comfort zone or serving the interests of others. Uh, we have a great listener uh, question, so while you've got the mic, we're going to take our last break, and then we're going to ask you, Professor and Rabbi Kimmelman, to help us distinguish between Ometzlev and Chazak. We'll be right back after the break. Whatever it's Look, on, on equal footing, we don't shy away from difficult subjects to talk about. That's the whole point. We're part of a community. We are learning, growing, and facing our fears all the time. One of those fears is talking about something that is very painful. It can affect the emotional well-being of couples. It's erectile dysfunction. It isn't something to be ashamed about. It affects uh, two-thirds or so of men in their lifetimes, and there are solutions out there that are enduring for patients that can't take those expensive blue pills. Uh, there are comorbidities and other reasons why side effects, why people cannot take uh, existing remedies. There is a new effective therapy. It's been around in Europe and Canada for some time, more recently in the United States, for erectile dysfunction. It's called Gainswave. And Manhattan Medical Associates utilizes this new effective therapy to help patients achieve excellent and enduring results for erectile dysfunction. It's non-invasive. It's surgery-free. It's painless. You do not have to be in Manhattan. You don't even have to be in the New York area. Anywhere in the United States, you can get a telehealth consult with Manhattan Medical about their Gainswave therapy for ED. Call for a free consultation. That's a $250 value. If you mention that you heard about Manhattan Medical's ED therapy on the Equal Footing Radio Show, you call 888-ED-CURE-9. In numbers, that's 888-332-8739. And give out that number one more time. For Manhattan Medical's Gaines Wave Therapy for Erectile Dysfunction, it's 888-332-8739. If you mention that you heard about it on equal footing, you get a free initial consultation. That's a $250 value. So call now. I've been caught. We're with Rabbi Reuben, Reuben Kimmelman and Dr. Tevi David Troy. We're talking about this complicated line. Difficult to ascertain sometimes when we're being courageous and when we're being reckless in our lives. We've used presidential examples. We've used patriarchal examples from Humash. Rabbi, we have a, a question or almost, a, I say a comment from a listener. says that we're really not getting at the distinction between ometzlev, which means heart strength or inner strength, and chazak, which is this outer strength. And if we explain that, we get to what it means to be truly courageous as a Jew. Uh, what is what is this listener getting at? Do you agree? Uh, I'm not sure what he's getting at, but I would assume that anybody would talk about erectile dysfunction at this stage is the expression of omits, slave, and chazak. <laughs> One will lead to the other, I assume. 
You win the prize. You want to give an example? The only guest is ever tied to, tied in a, uh, a sponsor's uh, message into the program. Okay, great. That's a I good think point. Great, it's it's a function. greater expression of courage. Displays omits live. I like it. Now, interesting. The word chazak, with regard to personality, is used most with regard to Pharaoh. Pharaoh in the first series of plagues, up to five or six, hardens his heart. And the last, his heart is hardened by God. Because hardening his heart, we don't normally express himself as courage. And I think it goes back to the analogy or the, um, the analogy I made before, that if he were promoting the interests of the Egyptian people or promoting the interests of justice, we'd find it admirable. But this is only promoting his own interests, preventing the Israelites from leaving the country, lest he show himself as a lack of control and not divine, and his hardening his heart is allowing more plagues and a display of divine power, therefore we don't judge it positively, not because of the lack of courage, but because interest was only self-interest rather than the other interests. So I'd make the distinction not between the verbal distinction of Omotzleib and Chazak, but if Omotzleib is derived from internal considerations of what is right, why Chazak is trying to impress other people with your power, then you're likely to make less mistakes by focusing on the internal consideration the imposing of Kazakh on power of others. That would be a helpful distinction for me. That's nice. You tied that in as well to the point you were making earlier about the interests of others versus self-interest. Dr. Troy, there's a, a listener, Ellie, who's in Chicago, who uh, describes in his words that really courage is about whether you're the underdog or not. And he uh, sends a Mark Twain quote that actually was in our show notes. It's not the size of the dog in the fight. It's the size of the fight in the dog. And that I was wondering if you could t- – first of all, do you agree? Is it about being an underdog? Is that when you show real courage? And it seemed to me, and I'm just throwing this out there in my own opinion, that really uh, the uh, American presidents have really only been the underdog pretty uh, – a long time ago, those early presidents like George Washington and Thomas Jefferson in facing external threats. What do you think about the listener's comment, and what do you say to mine? Yeah, I'm not sure I disagree. I'm not sure I agree with the listener because I think that there's all kinds of things that can happen when you go into battle, when you go into an unknown situation. It doesn't necessarily matter if you're the underdog or the overdog. There's uncertainty in every battle. It's like uh, Eisenhower said that um, plans are useless, but planning is everything, right? You, or, um, or Mike Tyson's statement that everyone has a plan until they get punched in the face. Uh, Mike Tyson was the favorite in most of the fights he fought in, uh, but, you know, Buster Douglas knocked him out. So I think there's always courage when going into an uncertain and difficult situation. And it's not always clear and that there's a David versus Goliath situation where you know, David is the clear underdog. And even in that situation, Goliath died. So uh, I think when you go into battle, you never know what's going to happen. Look at, look at the, the Russians. They were clearly a favorite. I'm not saying they were, they were particularly courageous or, or noteworthy, but what I, what I am saying is that the favorite doesn't always win. Rabbi, the underdog doesn't always make you right. Say it again. And the underdog doesn't always make you right. Yeah, that's fair. That's fair. Rabbi, this this, uh, next listener, Rebecca, her question I think is definitely aimed at you. I don't know. I'm certainly not capable of addressing it, and and I don't think Dr. Troy, coming from the perspective of a historian, is probably well-positioned either. And it's about courage in daily life, and particularly the courage to leave a marriage um, that 
is courage not best defined when everybody in society and your family around you is telling you you shouldn't do something, but you know in your heart you should? Isn't that the best example of courage? Um, not always what one knows in one's heart is valid. What one knows in one's heart could also be influenced by one's interest, one's personality, one's relationship. So before one contemplates a divorce, one should always ask the question, how many people will be harmed by this act? Many people are so um, angry at the moment of divorce, they don't always think of the repercussions to their children and to others. So insofar as one is able to do so morally, once you can consider one's own situation, plus one's children's, and see which way it adds up. And therefore, I play it again. If the activity is only motivated by self-interest, it's likely to be misleaded. If self-interest is incorporated into the interests of others, and they're also considered, it's likely to come out ahead. So I don't think following one's own heart, I know what that means, nor does that mean is it self-interested or others, and what's taken into consideration. Secondly is, in a marriage case, you only succeed by judging the other person as favorably as you're the other one to judge you. So before one gets married, since I do marriage counseling a little bit, ask the question, what are the other's complaints about you? How valid are they? It's rare, it's rare, although it happens, that all the guilt is on one side. In almost all marriages, it takes two to tango. And tango is T-A-N-G-O and T-A-N-G-L-E. And that realization can sometimes illuminate the situation. <laughs> All right, let's let's go. Let's we're toggling here. Let's go back to uh, before we before we finish. I'd be remiss not to at, not to ask you directly, Doctor Troy. What do you think is the greatest exa- greatest single example of courage in the U.S. presidency, and the greatest sig- single example of recklessness in the U.S. presidency? Well, those are good questions and not easily answered, but I would say Lincoln showed great courage in the Civil War, which was a huge challenge, and 600,000 Americans died. And uh, there were many times when he could have just said, okay, I'm going to give up. I will negotiate a peace with the the South. We will um, let erring sisters depart, as some some people advocated at the time. Uh, But he showed real courage in sticking through it, and without which this uh, great nation would not still be united. Um, I already I picked on John F. Kennedy a little bit in terms of recklessness. Uh, Lyndon Johnson also deserves some recklessness with the Vietnam War situation that kept getting worse and worse and escalating out of control, and he really couldn't figure out a way to deal with it. And he kind of felt egged on by his uh, rivalry slash hatred of Robert F. Kennedy, who he felt would attack him if he from the right if he ever pulled out of Vietnam. But the truth is what happened is Kennedy started attacking him from the left, off in the dovish camp. And so it, it turns out that you can't just rely on political considerations. You've got to figure out what, what the right thing is to do. I would, yeah, uh, can you, I say, of course. Let me, let me, uh, I agree with you on Lincoln, but I would go right after Gettysburg. Um, that's a remarkable expression. I, mean, I give, give him the credit for keeping the country together. If I look for recklessness in a presidency, is clearly, in my opinion, the invasion of Iraq. Uh, the second invasion by the son of the Bush, not the father of the Bush. And the reason he was disqualified from doing so, besides uh, the political error, is that too many people thought he was avenging Saddam Hussein's attempt to assassinate his father. And insofar as people could calculate a self-interest into the situation, it blackened the decision 
even if it had moral weight behind him. And the other one was Lyndon Johnson way back in late 67, apparently said, I do not want to be the first president to lose a war. When people started calculating his self-interest versus the public interest, whenever self-interest is involved politically, his enemies will jump upon them. And when you make a moral decision which is going to affect the country, you should make sure that you're not perceived as operating out of self-interest. I love how we are coalescing on this uh, definition applies to our to Jewish wisdom, to our daily lives, even to actions from the White House, the idea of when we're acting selflessly versus in self-interest, even if something appears to be bold. Um, I think we have time for just one last listener question, um, and this is, I'm going to uh, direct this to you, Rabbi Kimmelman. Uh, it's a quote from Prikeavot, The Ethics of Our Fathers, um, that the brazen go to Gehinom, but the bashful go to the Garden of Eden. And this would, I guess, imply that uh, that we should be we shouldn't be brazen, we shouldn't be bold. Is that the right lesson to take away? Well, the 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 word um, what you said um, there really is a, a, a busha is those who have a sense of embarrassment. The last thing you want to do ethically is talk to a person who does a wrong and has no sense of embarrassment. There is no possibility of repentance. Embarrassment means the capacity of a moral consciousness. And when I've done something wrong, I'm embarrassed at it. This is why the Rambam says that when a person does tshuva, you only know if he does tshuva if he's embarrassed to talk about his past crimes. But if he brazenly talks about his past crimes, he may no longer doing it, but doesn't mean he desires to do it. Now, if a person is brazen toward God, there's a famous statement in the Talmud, is chutzpah, Sometimes brazenness with vis-a-vis God is helpful. And your best example is Rebbe Yitzhak who would frequently pray for the people, knowing all the wrong they did and still asking for mercy. That's also brazenness. So we have to be careful of taking any single ethical quality, whether brazenness and embarrassment, and not look at the context. Nothing is right out of context. Many things are right in context, it's rare that one quality applies to all contexts. And therefore, everything, everything demands human judgment. And the last comment is, is if you're an interested party, you're disqualified for giving testimony about it. <laughs> good note, good note to, to end on. I guess, Dr. Troy, it's a tough one when it comes to presidential politics because we, 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 in a sense, require our leaders to be bold, to be brazen. It's a little bit of a maybe an unfair metric. So, Dr. Tevi David Troy, Rabbi and Professor Reuven Kimmelman, thank you so much for joining Equal Footing tonight. We hope we'll have you on again, and uh, maybe it'll be a, uh, an easier subject next time. Thank you both. It's been a pleasure. Thanks for having me. Mm-hmm.